Welcome to Exploring the Seasons of Life, a podcast for women with a big heart on a spiritual journey. I'm your host, Cindy McMillan, and I'm joined today by Dr. Artika Tyner. Each week, I interview coaches and spiritual explorers from all walks of life about beginnings, endings, and the messy bits in between. Self-love, well-being, and mindset are at the heart of our conversations because once you change the inside, the outside will begin to change as well. This interview is part of a self-care series called Life in Full Bloom, Living from the Inside Out. Dr. Tyner is a passionate educator, author, sought-after speaker, and advocate for justice. She is the founder of a nonprofit education organization, Planting People, Growing Justice Leadership Institute. It is my pleasure to welcome Dr. Tyner to the podcast. Thank you for being here today. Thank you. I'm honored to be here with you today. I start off with the same question because I just, I love it and I just love all the different variety of answers I get. What does exploring the seasons of life mean to you personally or in your business? For me personally, it means being aware of where I am in each season of life. It's acknowledging that in certain years, certain decades, it's been an opportunity to learn. While other seasons may be about growing and applying what I'm learning, but whatever season that I'm in, standing grounded in my faith and my purpose and mission to make a difference in the world and in the community. So for me, it's about self-awareness and it's also about moral responsibility. What will I do with what's in my hands to make a difference and impact? I love that. Absolutely love that. And that will take us right into to what I wanted to talk about next. And that is, I would love for you to share your journey to becoming a civil rights lawyer and a policy advocate. For me, I would say it was in my DNA and my makeup. I come from generations of pastors and teachers and everyone that I knew focused on how they could make an impact. They focused on the betterment of society and in particular within the African-American community where I was born and raised. My hometown's name is Rondo. And Rondo was a community that was like a Black Wall Street, that it was really an economic hub, a hub of opportunities, of possibilities. At the peak, there were hundreds of African-American businesses, from the doctor's office to the pharmacy to every part of your day-to-day life, the co-op, whatever you needed. It was a self-contained community. And when I talk about then what inspired me to become a civil rights attorney, the reality of it is, through the heart of Rondo, there was a freeway brought right through the middle. Now, this is not unique to Rondo. The same is true for Tulsa, Oklahoma, where we just celebrated the centennial uh, commemoration as an opportunity to celebrate the triumph, but also to challenge ourselves to deal with the fact that a massacre happened in 1921. One parallel that we have and what led me to Tulsa myself over the last month was the reality that just like Tulsa, Oklahoma and the Greenwood District, Over a thousand communities across the United States had a similar dilemma, that a highway went through the center, people were displaced, we lost families, homes, and businesses, and when I say we, because they were predominantly African-American communities. So knowing this, 
knowing where I came from, knowing my cultural heritage, to whom much is given, much is accounted for. So there was nothing else that would make any sense for someone that grew up with the spirit of Rondo in me, someone who grew up in the peak of the war on drugs and really seeing the racial disparities in the criminal justice system. It meant that I had something to do and to make an impact. So for me, I believe the law is a language of power. So I wanted to become well-versed in that language in order to make an impact in my community. You know, I, as you're talking, and I, I love that history that you're talking about. And when you say a thousand communities, you know, across the USA with with so many people displaced, that is just, it's, for us, as we're listening to that, it's so hard to believe that that happened. But of course it did. That's our history. Our history is important. There's a monument in Washington, D.C. near the National Mall that gives us a sense that the past is the prologue that it's with us, it's living and breathing, but the opportunity that each of us have is to write a new future, to be able to say, okay, we can acknowledge the atrocities that happened in the past, but it's our responsibility to bring healing, to bring reconciliation, to bring atonement, and to make things right in some meaningful ways. So it's a responsibility and a leadership challenge about you and I. Um, Dr. Tyner, I was going to ask you this a little bit later, but I think with what you just said, it's it's a good time for me to bring this up. I was reading an article on the Pew Research Center, and it said, it's hard to talk about race, fear of saying the wrong thing, fear of expressing an unpopular view, or simply the fear of offending others can dampen honest conversations about racial attitudes. And as I read that, I thought, that's how I feel. I don't want to offend anybody. And I do have a fear of saying the wrong thing. But And I mentioned this to you at, the, at before we hit record, that I'm in an interracial relationship with a man that I love very much. So I feel it's my responsibility to have these conversations. How do we start a conversation around race? It's a critically important question and timely and relevant, but I would ask the inverse of the question. You know, if the Pew Report is talking about the fear and the discomfort, imagine me, an African-American female, I don't have the luxury to avoid the conversation. It's a part of my day-to-day reality. So I think a part of it is, yes, there are fears, yes, there are challenges, but maybe what we can think about is two things. First of all, and even thinking about that research, a bit of empathy, I don't get a choice of whether or not I present myself as African-American. It's my day-to-day reality. And with that, I know that in every quality of life indicator, I face negative statistics, whether it's my health care access. We want to talk about the economy. Um, based upon the wealth gap, they say it would take 228 years to align and make sure that we bridge the wealth gap between blacks and whites. So empathy would make us have a realization that if we don't speak up, whether we get it right on the first time, the second time, or the thousandth time. If we don't challenge the inequities, if we don't even try, then it means that the reality of what I was born with and what I experienced, I could give you, I could talk hours of all the experiences of racism. It means that we are allowing ourselves to let the next generation inherit the same set of challenges without moving forward. In fact, in many ways, we're moving backwards. And we can verify that from the UN's data on the Human Development Index. In most instances, if we look at the experience of African-Americans, our quality of life is either the same 
or worse, if we look at even a period that seems long, but really is just a couple of generations of a century long period. So I just bring that up because I think a part of it is we also need to do education is my second point. We need to educate ourselves where we're not having conversations about opinions, what we think, what we heard, what we might have learned at the dinner table, but we're actually looking at the relevant data to come up with solutions. And last but not least, once we do those pieces, bringing the empathy together, bringing the raw data together, I hope that we can do this last piece, the culmination of those two, that we can move from being an ally. And an ally is being, it's an important role where we take a stand, we speak up, we speak out, but that we then evolve in our learning journey and our leadership journey to become an abolitionist. Two distinctive words with two different sets of characteristics and responsibilities. Allies gets us at the interpersonal, intrapersonal pieces, those relationships. Like I, you know, I honor Dr. Tyner or I honor my closest friend, my lover, my significant partner, whoever it is, my workmates. And when I see something happening to them, that personal side makes me stand up. That's allyship. I'm going to give some of my privilege to make sure I speak up and speak out for that individual. I want us to evolve on the systemic side. And instead of just focusing on being an ally, how can we be an abolitionist to radically transform the systems of injustice to make equity, fairness, and justice come alive? That means we have to change the very systems and structures in which we operate in. And for many of us, it's, it's not easier, but we're more accustomed to being that ally and supporting someone we know or an issue that we're passionate about. But if we're going to evolve to a, the America that we should be, the America that we promised, and whether our preamble of the Constitution or our Declaration of Independence, it's going to require deep systemic changes and that piece of being an abolitionist that we then transform, we uproot and change those systems that lead to the inequities that we see. Thank you so much for going through that and talking to me about that because you're absolutely, you're absolutely right. And don't know how you feel about or what books that you recommend, but I just had bought the new Jim Crow to start reading it and just, you know, start becoming more informed of what's going on because you're, you're right. I agree with you. It shouldn't be just opinions. It should be history that we're learning. I agree. And I, I would be happy to share a book list, a couple of the ones that I'm currently reading. Um, I would highly recommend reading a book called Blind Spot that looks at the science of unconscious bias to help to give us clarity as well. I also love a book because if we're talking about being those abolitionists, radically transforming systems and reimagining the future, I love the book Groundwork which is about the life history of a pioneering civil rights attorney by the name of Charles Hamilton Houston. The average American has never heard of his name, but without him, we wouldn't have the legacy that we have today, that he was determined and committed his life's work to burying Jim Crow, those segregated laws and policies that excluded people, and in particular African-Americans, from engaging in just their day-to-day -day life activities and creating a permanent system of inferiority for African-Americans and superiority for whites and embedding white supremacy in our laws and policies. So Charles Hamilton Houston was successful, but he didn't get to live to see it. But the beauty of it is, and why we plant seeds of social change, is because his mentees did. 
His mentee was Justice Thurgood Marshall and countless other federal jurists that laid the foundation for the civil rights laws that we enjoy and appreciate and benefit from. Whether it's laying the foundation of his work for uh, preparing us for the Loving case that even allowed for interracial marriages or Brown versus Board of Education that address the school segregation piece without Charles Hamilton Houston. Dr. King talked about him as someone who went from we had a roadway for civil rights and he turned it into a highway. He expanded it and made it a reality. So groundwork is a fundamental piece that I hope everyone reads. The author's name is Dr. Jenna McNeil. Dr. Tyner, if you want to send me your your book list or even just a few of the books, I will definitely put those in the show notes. Absolutely. Okay, I be careful what you're asking for. As a professor, I have a list. <laughs> so what is the connection between self-awareness and leadership? The two go hand in hand because self-awareness is where it begins. It begins with having a vision of what you hope to see in the world, what you hope to create, what you hope to change, what you hope to manifest. And that informs leadership. And when I'm talking about leadership, I'm not talking about a position or a title or exercise of a certain amount of power. This person gets this much because they have a Ph.D. and this person only gets a little bit because they have a GED. I'm not talking about that. That's too simplistic. What I'm talking about, and I look at it specifically also through my own faith journey. What I'm talking about when I think about leadership is a sense of agency that I'm here. I'm here in this moment of time. How will I leave the world a better place than how I found it? How will I tap into my gifts and talents in some unique ways to be impactful? I know we talk about in a general sense as maybe our strengths. How do we bring them to bear to help and engaging in community building, building stronger organizations and innovation, all those pieces. So for me, the essence of that is being aware of, first of all, what strengths do I have or those gifts and talents? How can I use them to be impactful? And how can I use them to be impactful to bring forth a collective vision with others? So a lot of my work is in partnership. Many people say, well, you're very successful at the work that you do. But I'm very successful in the work that I do in partnership with others, others that share a like mind and determination to be impactful. So we come together with that shared vision of a shared humanity and common destiny. So I have, as far as community partners, volunteers, people that I work with, my day-to-day life touches the world. And that's because, one, I went through that process of self-awareness. And I realized, and here's another book that you can pick up if you have not. It's called Now Discover Your Strengths. And it will help you identify your top five strength areas. Now, here's a little sidebar since we're talking about research. Gallup used the book and the researchers, and they wanted to find out globally how many people were using their strengths when they go to the workplace. It's appalling to know. If you look at full participation of using your strengths, bringing the bear in the workplace would be 100%. Only 20% of people go to work in their day-to-day lives and use their strengths. So here's the opportunity. I like to refer to myself as a bit of a treasure hunter. I'm helping other people unveil their strengths. And if you're with me within a moment's time, you can figure out what my strengths are. I've tested this out of audiences of thousands of people over the past decade. And they're able to figure out right away. They're like, oh, you like to work with people. They can see how I interact even when I'm, you know, on the platform for a keynote address. So that is when I'm demonstrating that I'm relational. They notice that I'm 
disseminating data and information. I don't have any notes with me. So clearly one of my strengths is input. So once I read something, I remember it for a lifetime, how and why, I don't know, <laughs> but I do. And, and once you put those pieces together and then what else is on my top three, I'm a learner. So that explains why I'm a professor. That explains why I create an educational institution, because learning is my passion and my vocation. So my hope for that self-awareness is that others can find the gift that they bring to the world. It doesn't have to be like mine. In fact, it will be remarkably different because we all have our own leadership DNA. But the greatest challenge that we all have is to find out what those components are. What does it mean? What's inside of us? And how do we bring it out to share it with the world? Will you talk about the Planting People Growing Justice Leadership Institute and how people can get involved in that? I, I was reading about that on your website, and that is so interesting to me. Yes, for me, Planting People Growing Justice is a big piece of this season of my life in creating, reimagining, and building. So one of the things that happened to me is, of course, the nature of my work of civil rights, it gets overwhelming. You're like, when will you lean into Sam Cooke? A change is going to come, but you say when. And instead of waiting and just quoting the, the statistics time and time again, a black boy born in the early 2000s has a one in three chance of going to prison in his lifetime, a Latino boy, a one in six. At what point do we get to that all children, that same black boy has a three in three chance of reaching his dreams, unveiling his full potential that I've already talked about, developing the skills of self-awareness to be impactful. At what point do we talk about that? So instead of waiting for someone to talk about it, I decided to be the person that instead of talking, taking action. And taking action then meant in my own living room, planting people growing justice, starting in my living room with my mother. She was handing us out snacks. We were frustrated. Team of volunteers, we saw the data. I mean, and once again, you can quote it in the sense of looking at uh, the correlation between illiteracy and future incarceration. It was real for me because many of my clients learned how to read during prison. The reality of it is that's a miscarriage of justice. That means that the person couldn't read the indictment. They couldn't support their own attorney within their representation by getting the right evidence or information. That's not what justice looks like, but that's a separate issue. Instead of just saying, this is terrible. Oh, that's so sad. This is too bad. And trust me, I'm still working on that separate issue. That, that's a legal issue we need to work on. But in the meantime, we decided to create new pipelines to success. When you have 85% of the children in the juvenile justice system who are illiterate, if you're not reading at that third grade level, anecdotally, you oftentimes hear that you can re use third grade reading scores to uh, project the prison population 10 years out. But let's just go directly to the facts instead of anecdotes. If you're not reading a grade level by third grade, it's going to increase your likelihood to drop out of school, which then also increases the likelihood of what? A future incarceration. So all of a sudden I wanted to write a new script and there were others that were courageous enough to go with me. So that's what we did. And we started off with publishing a book called Justice Makes a Difference, the story of Miss Freedom Fighter Esquire, because we wanted to do two things. First, promote literacy. We wanted to create new pipelines to success instead of pipelines to the jailhouse. And second, we wanted to promote diversity in books, because one of the things that we notice of our own personal experience for each and every one of us on the board 
none of us had books growing up with characters that looked like us. I mean, the reality of it is you're more likely to see a book with a black bear or a black dog on the cover than a black boy or a black girl. So we were also determined, in addition to promoting literacy, promoting diversity in books. So therefore, we had a book and we had a simple mission. At first, we said, hey, we'll just donate a thousand copies of this book. And that was kind of our vision. It didn't go further than that. But all of a sudden, people said they wanted to join our movement. I'm like, no, this isn't a movement. We just want to prove that we can get this data out, get a campaign nationally, raise awareness about illiteracy and the connection to future incarceration, create new pipelines to success, dare children to dream. That's it. Thousand books, we were done. To date, since we were founded, we've donated over 7,000 books. We've worked with over 5,000 students in school and still counting. Virtually, we're, you know, we're still working, worked with thousands of students online through our virtual programming, through our website, through our social media. So we started off, and I'm giving this as a word of encouragement to those who are tuned in with us who are thinking that maybe their dreams are too big and they're not sure where to start or that it's getting a little frustrating to dream alone. Just a handful of us came together. And we created an organization, grassroots style, and we are still moving strong, impacting more children than many organizations have been in existence for decades. Because we knew clearly our mission and vision, and by God's grace, he gave us the favor to open up doors and windows of opportunity that we've walked through to reach the children and inspire them. I love that mission. I love that you've been able to, you know, give out 7,000 books and worked with over 5,000 students. And if somebody wanted to get involved, now I'm talking about me, <laughs> how do they get involved? Just let you let you know and you can connect with us wherever you are in the world. You can fill out our contact sheet on our website, which is ppgjli.org. And you can also email us at plantingpeoplegrowingjustice at gmail.com. And there are things that you can do no matter where you are in the world. We have partners in Ghana, in Nigeria. We have partners in Florida, in New York, in Washington, D.C., in California, Texas, all over the nation. And what it provides for and what it gives us an opportunity to do wherever you are, you can host a book drive, you can get involved, and most importantly, you can help us raise awareness about the issues because we are a Minnesota-based organization, but we have a national and global reach. So it means that data that I'm talking about is not Minnesota data. I'm sharing national data. So here's our opportunity to come together and measure our success on creating opportunities for all students to thrive in meaningful ways. And what's the building block of that? Literacy. Absolutely. And, and speaking of books, I know you're the author of several books. What was it yeah. like when you were writing that children's book? I loved it. It was a great process. It actually took me on a whole different pathway of my own life since then. Uh, I'm uh, pretty quickly here, probably before the end of the year, I would have written at least a dozen children's books because it gave me an opportunity to tap into that inner voice of a child to make information and knowledge readily accessible, inspirational, and give young people the tools. I mean, growing up, my favorite place was the library. So why would I not share that gift of learning with others and with young people? Before I got on a plane, I was a first-generation college student. My family hadn't traveled too much beyond the Midwest by car. 
I mean, I've, I've traveled the world at this point. It was unheard of, but I had already traveled the world in books. I already had learned other languages. I grew up studying Mandarin Chinese. I had a dream of traveling to China when I was a young girl. My first trip was in 2012, and I went back in 2014 to teach and lecture. I had a dream of traveling throughout the continent of Africa once again when I was a young girl. And the only area that I need to go to now is north. I've gone west and east and south, so I have a few more. So I got to get into a few more countries and make my way. So for me, that's the direct connection, this idea on how do we create opportunities to inspire young people. So writing books was just my way. One, to share that gift and that inspiration, but also two, to make sure that we are providing young people with the resources so they can see a reflection of themselves, those mirrors and windows. So for young people of color, those mirrors to see themselves. We were very intentional on having the main character as an African-American female, as a young protagonist of color, and to be a superhero at that. But it's not just about mirrors. It's also about windows for all children to see each other more clearly, to see into other cultural experiences and build those bridges that unfortunately we didn't have when we were younger that started through the books and the curriculum at school. And as you're talking about, you know, you traveled um, through books before you ever got on a plane, that all, that goes to talking about the role mindset plays in our daily life. Could you talk about that a little bit? Yes, mindset's everything. Mindset, I've already, when I wake up in the morning, I'm already determined that I'm a winner. And I created a mantra for children so they could learn this as well. So when I talk about win, I talk about welcoming new opportunities. Every day I try something new, whether it's learning a new word in a different language, experience of reading a different book, because I'm a lawyer, of course, so primarily I'm reading law books, but I might read something in psychology one day. I might even pick up a cookbook and learn something about a different culture. So welcoming new opportunities, that willingness to be a learner and also imagining your future. Because a piece of it is oftentimes when I grew up, we were limited in many ways. So people thought that maybe our lives beyond Rondo was just a one mile radius. But the reality of it is by imagining my future, I knew I was a citizen of the world. So I prepared myself for that. I prepared myself to be a citizen of the world and make a meaningful impact. But most importantly of that preparation is the end. So this is the win attitude. The end is that you never give up. So no matter what obstacle I face, there are some days where I have to pause and regroup. But I know one thing with certainty that I will never give up. And the reason why, one, is my faith. But two, is the type of community that I built around me. On those days when I might get tired and it's a marathon on this quest for justice and freedom, I can lean into someone else that I've mentored or trained or supported or taught, and they can carry the baton a little further or sprint one more meter. And then I can catch up, get renewed and start again. So this is why community is important and starting and teaching and modeling those tools for our young people is vitally important. And, you know, with everybody, or I shouldn't say everybody, because there's been a lot of people that have had to go out to work, but for the students that have been at home throughout the school year, I think it's really important when you're talking about community that they 
get back out to school and are able to be with their classmates and be in that community? Yes, it'll be a unique opportunity to come back together. And hopefully we'll come back together with more grace and more appreciation for those opportunities when we can build community. Because in many ways, if we're not careful, you take it for granted. And this season has challenged us all to think about the importance of a hug, a handshake, and just those gentle gestures of love, respect, and community. So yes, my hope for our young people is they'll come back stronger in the sense of the power of their human connections together. Dr. Tyner, our time is flying by and I'm loving this, but I don't want to be respectful of your time. Do you have just a few more minutes? Of course, yes. (laughs) Okay, because I did want to talk a little bit about unconscious bias and addressing unconscious bias. And I happened to, I was thinking about that. So I went to Google and started Googling bias And I was absolutely astonished at all the different types of bias other than, you know, racial bias, you know, the, um, the things they're calling the affinity attribution, conformity, ageism, um, height. I mean, it was just like the list was going on and on. Can you talk a little bit about that? Well, unconscious bias recognizes one, that bias is something that's pervasive that we all have. And that's why you had such a long list because it impacts a variety of different issues or different identities or different components. If you also look at that diversity will of identifiers. The second piece is that if we then become aware that unconscious, unconscious bias is operating in our minds 24 7, 365, we can then challenge it when it comes to the forefront of our minds and then potentially could impact our actions or inaction. So I'll tell on myself for a moment, this is an unconscious bias. I went in and brought my car to the dealership and I waited in line. Everything was fine. You know, I'm close friends and acquainted with everyone at the dealership. So I was just waiting my turn. And then finally, Woman, a woman comes from the side and said, now I'll take your keys. And I'm looking around as like for shuttle service. So I'm already biased because it tends to be at my dealership, the women lead shuttle service and they're in the administrative roles. So when she said, I was like, no, I'm not looking, you know, in my mind going, no shuttle service. No, that we're a little confused. And why would you want my keys for shuttle service? Clearly this woman is dressed like the rest of the mechanics behind the desk with everybody else. I can clearly see all those things. And I try to justify my bias by saying, oh, she must be a part of the shuttle service. But that wasn't what was bothering me. The bias was I never had a female mechanic or technician work on my car. So I thought to myself, and this is split second. This isn't like it was something I had days to think about. This was a split second decision that I wouldn't release my keys. And it was so obvious that the male technician that I usually work with, he tried to ease the discomfort and introduced her, but all her information, she had more badges than him on her shirt and her uniform. I could see all those things. But the bias said, that's not the technician. If you give your car 
to this female, your car will be broken. She won't know better. But yet I study. I've been a diversity professional for 10, almost 15 years. And that bias crept up in a split second decision that I refuse to work with a female technician at my dealership. Why is this important? And why did I model this? Because we're going to have to be vulnerable and talk about the times that we don't get it right and that our bias has ruled over our common sense. Because like I said, she had all her credentials right there, but still yet I wouldn't release my keys. And so when we think about that, we sometimes then say, well, it's about me. That was poor taste and apologize, which I did. But here's the other piece. How did it impact that female technician? What was the experience like? What did it create within the atmosphere of that dealership? So when we look at this, I, I need all of us to have that bit of self-awareness and be honest with ourselves. That bias isn't just about something you read in a book. It's not something that you hear about. Bias has an impact. Because all of a sudden I was telling one of, now I know with certainty, one of those senior technicians that she wasn't qualified. So here it is. Being aware of bias gives us then a challenge to make sure that we're addressing it on an ongoing basis. And I'll make it personal for one more example. Bias within the legal system. In our state, we did a study of race bias in the criminal justice system in 1993. Fast forward to where we sit today in 2021. So that is... 20 years later, right? Plus, we still, with having the awareness, having the bias trainings, having the intercultural development instruments and inventory, IDI, all of these things that we've spent millions of dollars on, we still have basically the same outcomes or worse. And the race bias of sentencing, police contacts, and length of sentencing, conviction rates, what does that say to us? For lawyers, it creates a bit of an internal conflict because remember Lady Justice, she's blindfolded. So she's not supposed to see how much melanin you have in your skin or how much money you have. The scales of justice should be balanced on the facts that are presented, right? But the challenge then becomes that bias is pervasive, whether it's for the judge, jury, or even us lawyers. But then the challenge... We have to, in knowing this data, knowing this information is asking, what will we do about it? That we'll be aware because I had to create some opportunities to reflect on myself, whether it's at the dealership or after reading that data around race bias in the criminal justice system to hold myself and others accountable. So here's a tool that we can use. Harvard has free resources available called the Implicit Association Test. They're in a range of issues, as you noted already, related to age, related to um, ability, race, gender, a long list. My friends, take the invitation that I'm giving you right now. Explore, learn more about some of the biases that you carry, work to unpack them and address them and create a support system with others that we can all work through it. Because here's what's at risk, whether it was what I did at the dealership and the humiliation that I caused for the, the woman who worked there, or what happened in the criminal justice system with folks that are facing challenges related to their convictions, related to what the administration of justice looks like, and also the perception of justice. It gives us an opportunity, if we challenge ourselves around bias, acknowledge its impacts, 
But at the same time, the challenge is what will we do about it? We can manifest tangible change around many of the inequities that we see. And that goes back a little bit to what you were talking about, about self-awareness, you know, so I know that the unconscious bias, you know, is something that just comes to us in a, in a split second. But then when you say it's what we do with that, and that's really that self-awareness of, of learning ourselves as well to be able to take appropriate action. Yes, as a day-to-day, moment-by-moment obligation. If we say we're about justice, equity, fairness, we're going to have to be proactive in manifesting it. I'm loving all this. My last question to you is if you could turn back time and talk to your 18 year old self, what would you tell her about the season of life you're in right now? I would tell my 18 year old self, first of all, dream big. I mean, in many ways you hear it and you see the hashtag on my ancestors wildest dreams or I'm busy making my ancestors proud. When I was 18, I was just excited when I got that golden ticket with a scholarship from the Page Education Foundation, academic scholarship to go to college. That was a dream come true. But I would tell my 18-year-old self, there's more than that. That's just the beginning. And don't let anyone take your dreams from you. I would lean into, you know, Madam uh, President, President Ellen Johnson Sirleaf, who told us if our dreams aren't big enough to scare us, they're not big enough. And I would tell myself to dream on what I wanted to create. What would be the impact and legacy that I'd leave on the, in the world to say that Artika was here and she lived out and she poured out her fullest before she went home. So I would tell myself to dream and I would tell myself to dream big with no limits, no boundaries at all. And that's how I live my life. Many people are surprised. How did you accomplish so many things in a short period of time? I'm willing to dream of the impossible, and I have faith enough to believe that it will come to pass. Dr. Tyner, I love that so much. And I have a granddaughter that's going to be turning 18 soon. And I've been thinking about writing a book, actually, about turning 18. And that's one of the things I would love to tell her, dream big. It's a perfect book idea. I think getting many voices and folks talking about this because we don't appreciate the season of life when you're, we're in. When you're 18, you're rushing to write the next chapter of this new adulthood and this new process. But being reflective is a piece of being self-aware. So a part of it is to be able to share those tokens, those nuggets of wisdom on what we wish we would have known. And for me, dreaming big is essential because at that point when I was 18, I was defining dreams on other folks' terms, on what I had seen, what my life experience was. But now as I sit here, I know that the possibilities are infinite on what I can do. So I would have told myself, take, I just told a, a client I was coaching, we were having a casual conversation and she was telling me about her next career goals and they were all wonderful. But I said, can you take that in times at times a hundred? She goes, what do you mean? I was like, because, you know, if we talk about faith as a mustard seed, I mean, literally, if that is what you believe, activate it. Don't leave it just as, you know, sitting there and the mustard seed is one of the tiniest seeds. 
but you activate it. Once you speak it into existence, once you pray over, once you start moving, it's the first step that we must take. So I would tell my younger self as well, take that first step. Thank you for this whole conversation. And I appreciate it so much you being on the podcast. Thank you. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode and you'd like to help support the podcast, please share it with others, post about it on social media, or head over to iTunes to subscribe, rate, and leave a review. Leaving a rating and review helps to improve rankings in iTunes. It shows engagement, which may attract sponsors, and it is essential for the podcast to be discovered by new listeners. Plus, it would mean the world to me. Thanks again. Until next time, live inspired.